This show is supported by State Farm. You have insurance for your home, your health, and your car. Why don't you have insurance for your small business? So many small business owners think they don't need or don't even know about small business insurance. Protecting a source of revenue is one thing, but so is protecting all of your hard work and your team members. State Farm agents are all small business owners too, so they know how to help small business owners choose personalized policies that fit their budgets. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. Yes, we are gathered all together at the River to Sing Songs and listen to Dr. History, who is here in the studio right now, as a matter of fact, with his ear sets on, and uh, I guess he's got a whole bunch of thank yous to take care of. I do, Zeb. I want to thank Jill in Reno for uh see she, she has suggested some shows that, reno in reno and also uh she as you know zeb there has been a case that i have mispronounced a name or a place no i, I know it's hard to believe and, i mean i'm sitting here in mock amazement yeah but jill thank you so much for correcting me on on that and anybody out there if i say something wrong let me know yeah and then i can correct it so you can treat him dr history like his wife treats him I, always correct with respect. With Always respect. correcting him. <laughs> and hi to Peter and Brenda. They're two boys. John Luke. Don't you love that? John Luke. I love that. <laughs> there was and a John Mark. Luke in the movies someplace, wasn't yeah. there? And their son, Mark. And they have recently moved to Tennessee. John Luke. And the, don't tell me they got another. John Mark. No, Luke. John Luke and a son, Mark. Okay. Yeah. What about Matthew? Then nope, we'd have the four there. apostles right there. <laughs> anyway, th- I just hi to you folks, and thanks for your messages. And also, a listener that's been doing it for quite a while, Jeff in Costa Rica. Listens. Listens to us, yeah. You he- know, and this is where I get so upset. Some people have said to me, oh, well, nobody listens to talk radio anymore. Well, you nincompoops. <laughs> well, and, of course, they can always uh, catch us on the Internet and yeah. on iTunes. Yeah. Zebbell.com. So, yep, and yeah. dr-history.com. Costa so, Rica. Costa Rica, yeah. So he's been... Now, uh, if, if they were really, really good listeners, would they perhaps consider maybe, maybe making uh, hotel reservations for your wife, my he, wife? You know, and- Jeff has said if we come to Costa Rica, he will take care of us. Are you serious? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you set it up for this next fall, and uh, I'll let you pay for the plane I fare, figured you would. And I'll cover all the advertising. That, all right. Okay. <laughs> so you're going to say, where are we going this today, right? Yes. We're going to go north to Alaska. How's that? We're going to mush our huskies. We're going to hush our muskies up to Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, And this is kind of towards the end of the... Uh, uh, Klondike Gold Rush, but you know, in the gaming rooms, they ran 24 hours a day, and the gold never stopped circulating. Really, when the rush reached its height, men were ready to make any kind of wager for any kind of reason. In fact, two old timers bet ten thousand dollars on the accuracy with which they could spit at a crack in the wall. 
Swift. Well, I'm sure glad you're adding to the high class <laughs> attitude right. of our program this and morning. And Swiftwater Bill and a guy named John Healy. Swift Swiftwater Bill. Bill. And John Healy lost five thousand dollars between them in a single side bet on a stud poker game in which they were merely watching and betting on who would win. You know, I was just going to interrupt you real quick. Just the other night, I was watching that Jimmy Stewart movie uh, about him going as a cowboy up to Alaska, taking some cattle up there, and I can't remember the name oh. of the movie right now. But the Frontier Gambling Casino's up there, dangerous. Yeah, yep. Well, so here we go. One night, a neatly dressed man with a clean-cut features uh, thoughtfully walked into the over to the roulette wheel and lay a $1,000 bill on the red. Wow. Well, the black came up. He laid a second $1,000 bill on the red, and again, the black came up. And so he laid down a third, lost again. Ten times he laid $1,000 down on the green table, and ten times he lost. He showed no emotion. He strolled over to the bar and asked for a drink, and he said, quote, I went broke, he told the bartender. And with that, he gulped down his whiskey, walked out into the street, and shot himself. Holy was, cow. But let me keep going. There's, there's some weird things that happened with gambling. Yeah. A guy named Edgar Minsner invited a group of his fellow merchants to have a drink with him in the saloon of the Opera House. Yeah. The bill came to $4, and Minsner remarked with a chuckle that he would get it back on the roulette wheel. Well, he lost on the first spin, and so with his friends laughing beside him, he took a second whirl, lost again. He began to double his bets in order to recoup... Uh, but he still could not win. Pretty soon, he was plunging as the word went across town that he was playing for enormous stakes and large. Pretty soon, a crowd gathered to watch him bet. By dawn, he was down $15,000. With $4 drinks? No, no. After he had the drink, then he went to do the betting. Now he's betting uh, uh, on the. Uh, I know, the but wheel. this all started with four dollars right, drinks. Exactly. He thought he'd be down four bucks. Now he's down fifteen thousand. Huh. So in desperation, he made four long shot bets at one thousand dollars each. Lost each one. It was the end for Edgar. What happened to Edgar? I don't know. Does it say? <laughs> okay, here we go. Another guy, Silent Sam Bonifield. Silent Sam, one of the best-known gambling house operators in Dawson, used to say that the house made its money because once a man had won what he set out to get, uh, a dinner, perhaps, or a round of drinks, he quit and went home. Yeah. In other words, went home a winner. Yeah. But if you lost, he played on to the bitter end. It was uh, true of the operators themselves as well as their customers. Uh, a lot of times when the faro dealer and his lookout or partner, whoever's watching with him, had finished their stint behind the tables, they would take their pay from the pot. They would sit right down and lose it all, just like everybody else had. How crooked were the games? You know, it really doesn't say that they were. I mean, there was obviously some shard cart, some card leaning, sharks. Some, some leaning on the tables and yeah, that type of thing. Yeah, it could have been. Yeah. But, you know, it was, a fast, it was fast, and because it was fast and offered the players the closest thing to an even break, Pharaoh remained the most popular game of chance. I don't understand that. Okay, yet. I'm going to explain that right here. And I, because I didn't, I really don't think I've ever even seen it. But, so, in principle, it is somewhat similar to roulette. So, here's how it works. Every card from ace to king is painted on the faro table. Okay? Now, the players laid their money on these painted squares. Okay? So, you've got the picture. We've got the whole card deck painted on this table. All right? So, uh, the players lay money on a particular card. 
Like a king of hearts. Yeah, anything. Okay. Now, a metal box containing a deck of cards is attached to the table, and the dealer slipped off the top card, exposing the one underneath. Now, if the card that the player was betting on came up first, he lost. If it came up second, he won. If neither, he didn't lose or win. So the first card that came up... uh, If it was a king of hearts. Right. Uh, So, let me say that again. If the card that the player was betting on came up first, he lost. The first one, the the guy pulled up. Really? But the second one, the second card, uh, if that was it, then he, he won. Doesn't make sense. Why would he lose on the first one? Well, because it's not on his uh, where he's got his card. Oh, so okay. now I, I sounds still like a, a real confusing. fun game. Yeah, but above the dealer, there was a rack with thirty or forty little compartments which held the players' pokes, and into the rack with each poke went a slip of paper charging the owner for the chips he bought. At the end of the play, chips were balanced against slips, and the poke was either diminished or increased, depending on whether the player had won or lost. Wow. And I would imagine that it was pretty hard to skip out. Yeah, yeah. You you had people watching, so you weren't going to get away. Yeah. Now, each gambler had his own set of methods of playing. For instance, uh, there was a man who would walk into one or another of the houses every afternoon about 4 o'clock. He would buy a stack of chips and sit down to try his luck. If he lost, he quit. In other words, he was smart. Yeah. If he started to win, he played long enough to find out how lucky he was. And if he felt he was really lucky, he would begin to bet the limit. So I'm guessing eventually he probably didn't do all that. May I ask another question? Uh, How safe was it to be a winner and try to walk out of the... Establishment. Well, there were obviously the the outlaws, the people out. There was a guy named Soapy Smith I've talked about. And, yeah, good old Soapy. Know, and those guys, you know, they watched. And if somebody walked out and went down an alley, he shouldn't have. He didn't come back yeah, out. Yeah. So, But the best-known gambler in Dawson was a guy named Sam Bonifield, and he was known as Silent Sam and sometimes as Square Sam because he always ran an honest game. His bank, saloon, and gambling house was the most celebrated establishment of its kind in the Klondike. Hmm. Now, once Bonneville, Bonnefield lost, uh, uh, lost $72,000 in a poker game. $72,000. Oh, my And this is back goodness. in the 1800s, you know, and his ga- gambling establishment, uh, uh, he lost it, too. Oh, he lost everything. He lost everything, the, the, the money and his uh, gambling establishment. But, at uh, quote, at the 11th hour, a friend arrived loaned the gambler enough to keep on, and within six hours, Bonifield had won it all back again and cleaned out the customer. <laughs> so, Can it, you imagine playing for that kind of stakes? Well, to me, the question is, how, do, how long do you keep going losing, you know, hoping you're still going to win? Yeah, I mean, of so, course, I guess we're doing the same thing with the stock market. <laughs> I guess, yeah. <laughs> well, so Bonifield uh, then went north with uh, another bold and uh, a gambler friend of his uh, named Louis Golden, better known as Goldie. Obviously, that fits, right? Yeah. So Goldie and Bonifield took part in the biggest poker game ever recorded in the Klondike. There was fifty thousand dollars in the pot when Goldie raised it by twenty five thousand. Oh my! So now we're up to seventy five. Bonifield called him and raised again, bringing the pot to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. 
Goldie triumphantly laid down four queens. Bonifield, without a word or a change of expression, turned his hand over to show four kings and raked in a fortune. Oh. $150,000. Oh, my so That sure beats going out and digging in the in the dirt and the gold, right? Well, yeah, but somebody had to dig it up in the first uh, place. Exactly. But, you know, Bonifield made it a habit never to turn down a bet, and when a guy named Al Mitchell of Missoula, Montana, challenged him to a game, uh, two and a half later, hours later, Mitchell had lost $5,700, which was all he had. So that wasn't that bad, I guess you could say. Well, yeah, but... But 5700 back then... What is the ratio back then to the 1800s to now? It'd be almost like uh, seven to one. Uh, probably it? at least. Or, yeah. yeah. So wow. This show is supported by State Farm. Insurance is a part of any solid financial plan. Making sure you have the important things in life covered is one of the best ways to give yourself a little breathing room when things go awry. It's important to protect not only your business but yourself as a business owner and all current and future team members. State Farm agents know what it takes to run and protect a small business because State Farm agents are all small business owners and they live and work in your community. So they're deeply attuned to what's happening with other small businesses in your market. If you have a small business and are interested in making sure you're protected, reach out to your local State Farm agent to learn more about what you need. They'll help you find the right policy at the right price for your business. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Now, another guy named George, George Carmack arrived in Seattle and announced that he was building a yacht to sail to Paris mm-hmm. and to the South Seas and the Mediterranean Uh-oh. and the Orient because <laughs> he'd made so much money. Yeah. And so he had, his wife was actually an Indian named Kate and with her brothers, Skookum Jim. Skookum Jim. Jim. And Taggish Charlie. And Taggish Charlie. Those are her brothers, and they began making headlines. They loaded up with champagne. They were arrested and fined for being drunk. They caused a near riot by throwing banknotes and gold nuggets from their hotel window until a big crowd fighting for the money brought traffic to a stop. They were throwing they gold thrown, nuggets? Yeah, and money. Meanwhile, uh, the, the husband, George Carmack himself, was riding up and down the streets with an expensive cigar in his mouth and a sign on his carriage identifying him as George Carmack, discoverer of gold in the Klondike. Really? So some of these people that really well, struck did he ever, rich... Did he ever go on his yacht? Ever what? Do, ever go on that yacht trip? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> you got to get that stuff straight. <laughs> well, I'm thinking if he threw that much money and gold out, he may not have had enough to Holy pay for a boat. Moly. So another guy, Charlie Anderson, uh, now known universally as the Lucky Swede. Lucky Swede. The Lucky Swede, because he had bought a million-dollar claim when he was drunk uh, and was on his way to Europe accompanied by his wife. So he bought a, a claim that produced a million dollars. million dollars back in those days. 
Yeah, at least seven or eight million, ten oh. million maybe. So he went to Paris and London and New York and finally to San Francisco. And then there was a guy named Big Alex McDonald. He went to Paris too and then to Rome and where he was granted an audience with the Pope and made a knight. And, and he was <laughs> off to London. And this is just because he was rich, you know. Well, there seemed to be no end of his wealth. And in Dawson that spring, his 15-mule pack train loaded with gold was a familiar sight on the Klondike River Road on one of his claims, a single man was able to shovel in $20,000 in a 12-hour stretch. 20000 Okay? One payment amounted to 150000 I mean, where he was getting his gold was, has to be just... Did re- these folks ever put that money in a bank and let it you know, uh, grow few, interest or anything? There's a few that did. But, uh, you know, uh, when a newspaper correspondent dropped in uh, on McDonald. Uh, he said, uh, quote, help yourself to some nuggets, uh, as he pointed to a, a bucket that had a bunch of gold nuggets in it, like he was handing out a box of chocolates. Are you serious? Yeah. He says, hey, you know, take a few of those home with you. Really? That's <laughs> so, only six or $700. Yeah, yeah. So, but you know, the statistics regarding the Klontike stampede are diminishing ones. Okay, here's the numbers. 100,000 people, it is estimated, actually set out on the trail. Some 30 or 40,000 reached Dawson. That's where a lot of the mining took place. So about 40%. Yeah. So only about one half of this number bothered to even look for gold because they got over there so and realized it was, it was just hard, hard work. We're down to 20% of the yeah. people. And of the 4,000, a few hundred, a few hundred out of the original 100,000 found gold in quantities large enough to call themselves rich. Wow. And out of these fortunate men, only a few managed to keep their money. Really? But when, again, you talk about how hard it was. I mean, one of the methods they used, they'd uh, come to a creek and they would uh, uh, get a bunch of wood. About, I'm going to say, 15, 20 feet by 15, 20 feet. They started on fire, and they would burn down through the the, uh, hard, uh, frozen ground. Then they'd clean that out, put more wood, and go down a little farther, and then a little farther, until they got maybe 15, 20 feet down to where the creek, uh, where the gold was. But can you imagine how hard work that And it was be? cold. And it was cold. So, now, the kings of the El Dorado, they toppled one by one. Uh, kings of the kings, El Dorado? The ones that really took in the money. I see. But they toppled. They didn't stay that way. A guy named Antone Standard drank part of his fortune away. His oh, wife deserted him. My. And you can't really blame her, because when Standard was drinking, he was subject to crazy fits of jealousy. And actually, on one occasion, he tried to cut her to pieces with a knife. That could kind of maybe drive off a wife, don't you think? If well, yeah. You, him with there might be a solid reason there. Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> anyway, Stander headed north again, seeking another Klondike. He worked his passage aboard a ship by peeling potatoes in the galley. A rich guy. A rich guy. He ended up, he died in the Pioneer's home at Sitka. Wow. With nothing. Nothing. Now, another guy, Wynn Oler, died in the Pioneer home, too. He had sold a million-dollar claim to the Lucky Swede for $800. That's where Lucky Sweet got that million-dollar yeah, It amazes me, all these stories you're telling me that nobody really saved for rainy days or old age. They didn't. They just, I don't know. I don't understand that Holy mentality. Holy moly. Now, a guy named Charlie Anderson, uh, 
like the lucky Swede, he didn't do, didn't do any better. Uh, he had a girlfriend, a wife that divorced him, and he was so convinced he would strike it rich again that he vowed never to shave off his little pointed beard until he recouped his fortune. Okay, he was still wearing it in 1939 when he died. Oh my! Pushing a wheelbarrow in a sawmill for three dollars a day. Three dollars a day. But it had always annoyed him when people referred to him as a millionaire. He said, quote, I never had a million dollars. The lucky Swede used to say, ah, the most I ever had was 900000 <laughs> Not quite a million. Lord. He only had 900000 And I always adhere to the 70-30 rule, even when I was on the road. 70% for expenses and all that, 30% at least has to yeah. come back to me. Yeah, they needed some uh, financial guidance up there, I think. Oh, uh, my. You know, Maybe we should open up an office. Up there, yeah. With Soapy Smith. Yeah. <laughs> so another guy, Dick Lowe, the owner of the famous Bonanza uh, Gold Strike, managed to get rid of more than half a million dollars. Part of it was stolen from his claim because he was too drunk to take notice of what was going on. Holy he didn't know they were coming in. Part of it was flung in on the bars and the saloons at Dawson and Grand Forks, as much as 10000 at a time. Like I said, these guys, they... They were loaded, but they'd go in and just blow it. I got to ask you a question, and it goes back to food. Okay. Okay. These casinos, I'm sure they had restaurants. Sure. What about the influx or the maintaining of making sure they had all the different menu items? Well, you know the the, the people that made money off the miners. They provided everything that those miners needed. I mean, where did fancy. they get all the food though up there? That's a good question. I, I'm guessing that a lot of it had to come from San Francisco. Oh, yeah. It had to be shipped in. So, yeah. Now, there's another guy named Tom Lippy. He was a God-fearing man who did not drink or gamble. He ended his days bankrupt, though he took almost $2 million from his El Dorado claim. Oh, my. After he yeah. sold out in 1903, Lippy and his wife made a trip around the world and built this big, huge home in Seattle. The windows were of stained glass. The woodwork just intricately carved oak and mahogany. There were 15 rooms, including a big, huge ballroom. The ceilings were decorated with murals. A priceless correct collection of oriental rugs covered the floor and hung from the walls. Now, some of Lippy's obscure relatives, and this happens, Zeb, began to move to Seattle. Guess what? I'm your long-lost cousin. Imagine. And he took them all in, and he got them jobs. He made big donations to the Methodist Church and the YMCA. He donated the land on which the Seattle General Hospital was built. Now, this is a guy, like, so he had two million bucks. Um, he became a respected citizen. He was hospital president, YMC president, YMCA president, but he was, uh, he was no businessman. He sank almost a half a million dollars in a mattress and upholstery company, a brick company, a trust and savings bank. All went back bankrupt, and Lippy was ruined. When he died in 1931, at the age of 71, he had nothing to leave behind. I wonder if any of the people and or organizations that he helped ever came to help him. You know, I, I like to I like that story because here's a guy that he didn't just go blow it on. That's right. Uh, you know, but I wonder how many turned around yeah, in his time of need. That's yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. So one more last little okay. one here. There were the two most industrious men on Bonanza and El Dorado. El Dorado enjoyed continued success and fortune for the rest of their lives. A guy named Lewis Rhodes and another guy named Clarence Berry. Okay, they sank the first two shafts to bedrock in the Klondike while their fellow 
miners were just not doing anything. They were out there working. Now, Barry took a million and a half dollars from his claims on the El Dorado. Then he and his brothers moved on to Fairbanks, where they struck it rich a second time. They returned to California, secured oil property near Bakersfield, Uh and made another enormous fortune. And at various times, they owned both the Los Angeles and the San Francisco baseball clubs. No kidding. Yeah. So that would have been, like, say, 1930s, right in there. Uh, let's see. The Dodgers didn't move to L.A. until the 60s, though. Okay. Uh, well, it was the Los Angeles. I'm not sure. Yeah. And San Francisco. Well, Lewis Rhodes, the other and guy. the Giants didn't move. Uh, no, I, I, I wonder about that. Yeah. Well, they were teams of some kind. Yeah, you know, but baseball teams, uh, the Giants moved from the East Coast, and yeah. so did the Dodgers, and that didn't take place until, I think, the 60s. Yeah. Well, they they uh, bought some teams of some kind. I don't know yeah. what they were. but uh, uh, the ladies, other... ladies softball team. <laughs> okay. Lewis Rhodes, the other guy, he invested his Klondike fortune in mining property in Mexico, lost everything, and wow. without a moment's hesitation, he turned prospector again, headed for Alaska. He found a gold-bearing quartz, which yielded him a profit of $300,000. Oh, my. Not too bad. He retired and lived out the rest of his life in comfort. So both of them... It's kind of like you. I mean, living out his life in comfort. <laughs> yeah, it's me. I'm not out there shoveling. Uh, but again... The, but the risk. And the hard work and the cold oh, and the misery. I couldn't take the cold. I, I couldn't either. No, don't like the but, So I have a lot of respect for those guys. And, and like I said, unfortunately, there's some that just gave up. Yeah. Just, they were done. And they were done. Yeah, yeah. unfortunately. So. Well, they should have been chiropractors. <laughs> That's right. He's working in an ice <laughs> office. I think about that when I was growing up, milking cows and uh, out there in the cold when it's 20 degrees. And, well, uh, next week, what are we going to talk about? I'm uh, sure you're organized. I certainly am. Yes, but I don't want to spoil, I don't want to spoil I it by see. telling you what I'm going to talk not about. Not a teaser. No, I'm okay. not. Okay. Doctor history. That was a good story. But it still amazes me why they couldn't shoebox a little bit of that wealth you know i guess you know it just went to their head you know here i've got all this money i'm gonna go show everybody how much i got yeah dr history of course we appreciate him every tuesday right here on zebeth ranch thanks to state farm for supporting this show and helping our listeners protect their businesses and lives like a good neighbor state farm is there talk to your local agent today